You are worthy of it all, Lord Jesus. You are worthy of our lives. You're worthy of everything. Help us to grasp that this morning. Let it grip our hearts that you are truly worthy of it all. You are truly worthy for us to give our lives, our whole lives, for your service. And and to honor you and to love you, you are truly worthy of it all. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask Madison to bring up a slide as as you're seated I want you to remember this, this, the lyrics of the song we just sang because it, it's going to close my message with this thought. It says, all the saints and angels, they bow before your throne and all the elders cast their crowns before the Lamb of God. What do we do with our crowns that we receive in heaven? We cast them at his feet. Keep that in mind because that ties in to my message this morning. Children are dismissed to Children's Church. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Paul will um, give you a Bible. <clears throat> and if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be picking it up at verse 6 and finishing up the rest of this chapter. Let's read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. The first three verses. Scriptures, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Question for you this morning. Have you ever taken inventory of your life? And what I mean by that is you ever come to a point in your life where you stop and you reflect? Where, where you look back at your accomplishments or you look back at your failures or you look back at what you've done in the past and then you look forward to the future? That's what I mean by taking inventory of your life or having a moment of reflection. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in verses um, 6 through 8. Now, I told you I'm going to teach from chapter 6 through the rest of the chapter, but 90% of my message this morning will come from verses uh, 6, 7, and 8. These are Paul's final words. These are Paul's final words, and he's reflecting on life. In these three verses, he looks back, he looks forward, and you'll see that there's one thing that consumed Paul's life. There's one thing that consumed his life, and that was Jesus. That was his passion and his love for Christ Jesus. So y'all ready to dive into it? Y'all ready to look at it? Let's take a look at it. Starting at verse 6. Starting at verse 6. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I want to stop right there. Because Paul is reflecting on his life. And I want to look at each reflection in this verse. And the first reflection that we see here in verse 6 is the apostle viewed his life as an offering to the Lord. And notice he says there, I'm already being poured out. That word poured out means to completely give 
everything you have. And that's exactly what Paul did in his life. He gave everything he had for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gave everything within his power, within his strength, within his ability to advance the kingdom. He spent his life, as we see in the book of Acts, uh, three missionary journeys spreading the gospel. And then finally, his ultimately, his trip to Rome where he would lose his life and, he, and he, he'd be imprisoned. And that's where he's writing this letter from. After this letter is written, after 2 Timothy is written, shortly afterward, afterwards, uh, Emperor Nero will have Paul beheaded. He will have Paul beheaded. But up until that point, till every last moment, he poured out his life. And notice it says there in verse 6, he says, being poured out as a drink offering. Now what's up with this? Why is he, why is he saying, I'm being poured out as a drink offering? You have to go back to uh, Exodus chapter 29 and Numbers chapter 15. See, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, they had this thing called the brazen altar. The brazen altar in the tabernacle. And what would happen is the Israelites would bring a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, a lamb, that would be sacrificed on the brazen altar. It would be burnt up. It would be consumed as a sin offering unto the Lord. But if you go back and you look at the chapters, the lamb was not the only thing that was offered on the, on the uh, brazen altar. It also was a, a grain offering. And a drink offering, a drink offering of wine was given with the sacrifice. And the drink offering would be poured on the lamb as it was put on the brazen altar. And what would happen to that lamb and to that wine on the brazen altar? It would be consumed. It would be consumed and smoke would rise as it was burned up. It was like an aroma going up to heaven as a sacrifice for the people's sins. But it would be completely consumed. And now Paul is saying, I'm like that drink offering that's being poured on the sacrifice. The sacrifice is him giving his life to Christ Jesus. And it was being consumed by the Lord. It was going up as a sweet aroma. And that's why he refers to himself as a drink offering. Well, that's good for Paul, but how about me? I mean, what about, what about us? Is there a requirement for you and I to similarly, in the same manner, give our lives to the Lord? Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul says there in Romans 12, 1, in light of the gospel... In light of what Christ has done for you at the cross, when you understand this glorious good news, that he's, he's forgiven you of all your sins, he's given you new, this new life, he's saying in light of that glorious good news, you ought to want to give your life. And he says there at the end of uh, verse 1, he says, this is your true and proper worship. That's worship, guys. Now, worship does take place on Sunday morning. I agree with that, that, that what we just experienced was worship. But worship, in addition to song worship, is also our, the way we live our lives. Worship is a lifestyle. How we live Monday through Friday represents who we worship. Are we worshiping the Lord? 
Are, are, are we worshiping the Lord? Are we giving him that true worship, that true dedication, that true commitment, that obedience during the week? Are we seeking, not, not, not living this perfect life, but are we living this life where we want to please him and we want to do the right thing and we follow through with it? That's being a living sacrifice. That's being alive. We're alive, but we're a sacrifice unto the Lord. True worship is when we sacrifice our will for his will. True worship is when we give everything. Now, to the natural mind, you're not going to want to give everything. But it's not until you understand this glorious good news of the gospel. Until you understand what he's done for you. My friend, he's given you eternal life. Do you understand that? And we're, we're going to see later on in, the, in, this, in this same verse that one day this life's going to come to an end. But it's just going to be just a little blip as you step from time into eternity and you have eternal life and you see the glories of heaven. He's given us that. And in light of that, we should offer our lives as a drink offering. Lord, pour my life out on the offering of sacrifice. Let my life be pleasing to you in light of what you've done for me in the gospel. Then he continues in verse 6. We're, we're hovering here for quite a while, verses 6 and 7. After he says that, he says, And the time of my departure has come. The second reflection I present to you this morning, based on this text, is this. He, his, his view of death. Death is not the end. I love this. This reveals how the apostle viewed death. It was not an end. It's not an end. What does it say there? It says, it's a departure. It's a departure. That's why we don't have to fear death. Because Jesus has conquered the grave. He's conquered the fear of death. And yeah, there's some unknowns about how we're going to pass away and, and, and what's going to happen in our final hours. But ultimately, it is not the end. It is, as the text says right there, it is a departure. And that's how we have to view life. We have eternal life, not only in eternity, but here in the here and now, in this life. And it carries us through this life, and he carries us right into eternity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 eight, he says, We are of good courage, I say, prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Another place in Philippians, Paul says he wrestles with this. He, he's actually looking forward to his departure. He's looking forward to his departure and going home to be with the Lord, but he's wrestling with it because he says the church needs his help. And he's got more evangelization to do. And he's got more kingdom building to do. But still, as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, our, our belief and our trust in Jesus should take away that sting of death, that fear of death. Yeah, there's some unknowns and like, oh, what's it going to be like? And I'm with you on that, and I, and, I, and I hate the thought of death. I don't like death. I love life. I love my family. I, 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 love, I love what the Lord has given me. But ultimately, it's through his resurrection from the dead, he's, he's given me um, a confidence knowing that when, when this life ends, it will not be the end, but it will be a departure where I step into eternity. Listen to what Billy Graham said. Billy Graham said at one of his crusades, he says, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. How can we know this for sure? 
How can we know this beyond a shadow of a doubt that it will be like this? The historical fact of his resurrection from the dead. That anchor that holds our hearts in his resurrection that we celebrate every Easter, that we, the Bible says that we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That will be the anchor. And that is the evidence that death is not an end. But as the scripture says there in verse 6, it is a departure. Got it, guys? You see it? He continues as we go into verse 7. He says in verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. The reflection here as Paul is looking back over his life. And he says, I have fought the good fight. The third reflection I present to you this morning is he saw the Christian life as a battle. He saw the Christian life as a, as a, as a battle. Who do we battle against? Not against each other. <laughs> not against each other or not against people or, or not, not against uh, uh, politics or, or people or things in this world. But we wrestle against two things. One, we wrestle against our flesh. Yes, we are born-again Christians, and we love Jesus with all our hearts. But there's this war that takes place inside of us still as a believer. There's this war that takes place inside of us to, to, do, to verse, doing right versus doing wrong, yielding to the Holy Spirit or yielding to the, the works of the flesh. That is a battle that we all face. And the only way we can win that battle and that spirit versus the flesh is being yielded to the Holy Spirit. Is being yielded to the Holy Spirit and spending time in his word. We also wrestle against the powers of Satan. You know, there's a spiritual war taking place today in 2020 for the souls of men. We see all the rage and the anger and the hatred and all this stuff going on in the news. My friend, there's a power behind it. There's a power behind it. And as Christians, as believers in Christ, we got to be praying for these people. We got to be praying for these people. Our political leaders, the people in our, in, in our, in our world, in our neighborhoods, we got to be praying for these people and presenting them with the gospel, the glorious good news. But there is a real war that takes place. And if you don't see it, you're blind because it's everywhere and it's raging around us. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It says right there, it's not against, it's not against people, but it's against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It is an unseen battle that you and I as believers, that the body of Christ must fight on her knees, on her knees in prayer for, for, the, for deliverance, to stand firm in the gospel and to spread the gospel. If you go on to continue reading in Ephesians chapter 6, you'll see that um, we're given tools. We're given tools for this fight that he's referencing in verse 7 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're given the breastplate of righteousness. We're given the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate, it covers your heart. We have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
and he is living in our hearts. And we have that breastplate around us. We, and it says we stand firm in the truth. We stand firmly on the word of God when it comes to truth and error, when it comes to right and wrong. We, we, we have the shield of faith. We lift up our faith in God. We lift up our faith of trusting and believing God. And that produces a shield that protects us and guards us in the fight. We pray in the Spirit. You know, not only do we pray with words that are known, but we can pray in a, in a, a Spirit-given language where we pray in the Spirit for these things and we intercede for the body. So we pray in the Spirit, and then ultimately we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we stand firm on it, and we hold to it, and we, and we use it to guide us and, and direct us and, and, and take us forward and, and help us to win this fight. The battle is real. The battle is real. And it's when you come to a place where you believe there's no battle is when you will succumb. You will succumb. You will be taken out. We've got to stand strong in the faith. Stand strong in the word. And as Paul said, as Paul's reflecting here, we've got to make sure this is a firm part of our life. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, he, he continues after he says, I've fought the good fight. What does he say next? He says, I have finished the course. The fourth reflection is this. Serving the Lord, being a believer, is like you're running a race. You know, you're, you're, you're running a race. You're running a race that has a beginning and an end. Pastor David, how do I start running this race? The way a person starts, begins to run this race is they become a believer. They repent and put their trust in Christ. They receive him as their Lord and Savior. They follow him. When you do that, when you commit your life to Christ Jesus and you surrender to him, guess what? You just started the race. You just started the run. And, and it's a lifelong, it's a lifelong run. It's a lifelong exercise. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. You know, when I was in the guard, twice a year, I was tortured. I was put into misery. It's called a PT test. And we'd go out to the USC track, and I'd have to run eight laps. Had to run eight laps around that track. Eight laps is two miles. And I remember those last two laps. Gary knows what I'm talking about. He's, there, he's over there laughing at me. Uh, it was like everything. I had to dig deep because I was out of breath and I was hurting. But I kept on going because I had first sergeant and the commander on the side saying, Go, Ford! Go! Go! Don't, don't stop! I'd start to slow down a little bit. No, don't you walk. Keep running. Keep running. And it took them coaching me. And it took them pushing me to finish my, my PT test and to pass it and say, Whew, done for six months, praise the Lord. That's what we do to each other. We're like that first sergeant. We're like that commander who's coaching everybody else, saying, come on, you can do it. Finish strong. Keep running. That's our job because we're all running this race together. And our job is to encourage each other to keep going, to run the race. Because guess who's at the finish line? Guess who's at the finish line? I heard it. 
Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at the finish line. When you finish this race and you cross that mark, you're running into the arms of Christ Jesus. You'll see your Savior. You'll see your Lord. And you'll have finished the race. But Paul says here in verse 7, he says, I have finished the course. I have finished the course. He's like an athlete. He's running. You and I are like an athlete. Let's run hard. Let's run strong. Let's keep going. And when you see your other brothers and sisters running the race, encourage them. Encourage them. He is worthy of it all. He, in light of his, his great sacrifice at Calvary, where he's, he's forgiven me of all my sin and all my immorality and all my evil deeds I've done, he's forgiven me. He's washed me, made me clean. He's given me his Holy Spirit. I've been born again. I have this new life. Lord, I'm going to run hard, and I'm going to run hard for you. That should be our heart. That should be our heart's desire. I want to serve you, Lord Jesus. I want to live for you. I want to run this race, not for myself, but for you. Now, let's continue in verse 7, the next phrase here. The next phrase is the fifth reflection where he says, he says what? I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. The fifth reflection is one of my favorite sayings that I like to say here. And that fifth reflection is this. Paul stayed the course. Paul stayed the course. It says he kept the faith. What does it mean, Pastor David, to keep the faith? To keep the faith means that you hold to what God says is true. In other words, your convictions and your truth lines up with what the truth of the Bible is. You know, when we, we, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And as we learn about Christ from the scriptures, we believe it. As we learn about morality from the scriptures, we believe it. And then we stand firm on it. And that's what it means, my friend, to keep the faith. It's simple. We learn from the word and we say, Lord, your word says it. I believe it. That settles it. And we, and we maintain that conviction in our life. And Paul's saying here that throughout his ministry, he didn't bend. He didn't bend, but he, he kept the faith. And my friend, things are changing. Times are changing. Times are changing as we speak, and they're changing rapidly, very rapidly if you don't see it in our culture. This, I'm looking at this phrase, he says, I've kept the faith, and I'm looking at you and I today in 2020. You know, the command to us, the challenge to us is to keep the faith. But this is where it will get tougher. This is where it will get tough for a believer living in 2020. Because as the standards of morality change in our culture, you ready for this? Who will you believe? Will you believe what the culture says? Or will you believe what the Word of God says? We have to ask ourselves an honest question. Does our faith, does what we believe, does it align with God's truth? And if your faith and your belief, if it lines up with what the word of God says, then you're standing in the faith. And I said this is going to, this is going to get tougher and tougher as we move forward with the standards of morality changing in our culture. For example, here's a, here's a question to pose to you. Does your definition of marriage align with God's definition of marriage? You know, the scriptures repeatedly, so over five times in scripture, it says, for this purpose, a man shall leave his mother and father and be cleaved to his wife. 
The biblical definition of marriage is one man and one woman for life in marriage. That is the biblical definition of marriage, and it will never change. It will never change. And, and as believers, you know, we hold to that truth, and we follow that truth, not because it's our idea or it's what we think works best. It's because God is what's revealed in your word. And that's why we hold to that, and that's why, that's why we keep the faith. How about this one? Does your view on the sanctity of life align with the word? I'm telling you, I was in tears this week. I was in tears this week as I, as I turned on the TV and, you know, seeing all this stuff, this the wrangling going on in D.C., and they showed the march for life. And then, yeah, I was like, I was just, I about started crying to see these millions of people gathering for the march for life and the president of the United States being the first president to go and speak to them. It, it, made, it made my heart rejoice. You know, it made my heart rejoice. But God says clearly in his word, I formed you in the womb. I made you. I formed you. You know, that is the biblical world. That's the biblical worldview uh, of the sanctity of life. You know, we believe life uh, begins at conception. Not because it's our opinion or not because it's what we feel is best. It's because it lines up with Psalms 139. And we hold to that truth. You know, we, we have to ask ourselves when we say keep in the faith, Lord, are we, are, are we lining what we believe with your word? And, and we hold it in a spirit of truth. We hold it in a spirit of grace. We hold it in a spirit of firmness. But we hold it. We hold on to it because it's God's truth and not ours. He makes the rules, not us. That's, that's what Paul is looking back at. Paul is reflecting on one his life is an offering to the Lord. Is our life an offering to the Lord? He desires for it to be in the way we live and the way we live to please him. Number two, death is not the end. We need to understand that and have an eternal perspective. The Christian life is a fight. It's a war against the flesh. It's a, it's a war against the forces of darkness. And that's why we've got to be strong in our faith. Strong in our, you know, we're running a race. We're running a race, and ultimately, and, and we're staying the course. We're staying the course. We're keeping the faith. And now, as we get to verse 8, we got to two verses. Now we get to verse 8, Paul's going to look forward. Paul's going to look forward. Let's take a look at it. Um, in verse 8, he says, In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul is in the maritime prison. <clears throat> He's in the maritime prison. He's in chains. He's awaiting execution. But the interesting thing is, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it. He's completely consumed with his relationship with Christ Jesus. He's completely consumed in evaluating and reflecting his life and he says, you know what? They can't kill me because I'm already dead. I died on the Damascus Road. The old Paul died and the new, new Paul came to life. And so he says here in verse 8, the thing that, that, that grabs me is he's looking forward 
to seeing his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But look at what he says is laid up for me in heaven. In verse 8. What is it? A crown. A crown. He says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Did you know the Bible talks about crowns? There's actually five of them, and I want to share them with you this morning. But there's, the Bible says there's five crowns that will be given to believers on that day when they step from time into eternity and they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. But give you a little heads up now. Don't hold on to them too tightly because you won't have them for long. But uh, the first one, the first crown is the crown of righteousness. And it's based on this verse right here, um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Who is this crown of righteousness for? Look at the verse at the very end. For all who have loved his appearing. Do you long for his appearing? Do you say in your heart of hearts, man, I can't wait for the Lord to return. I can't wait to see him face to face. Your heart cries, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what the crown is for. It says, who will award to me on that day? And Paul says, not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. So there's this special crown of righteousness for those whose heart cry and their hope is in the Lord for him to come again. There's a special crown. I'm going to show you the rest of the crowns. The second crown. The second crown is called the imperishable crown. It's based on 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 25, where the, the word says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. This imperishable crown that's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is for those who run the race. This is for those who are disciplined, those who are focused, those who, as a little sports analogy, those whose heads are in the game, you know, they're, they're, they're focused, they're in it, they're, they want to follow the Lord. And that's who this imperishable crowns for. It's those who, who see the Christian life as an athlete and they go after it in such, such a way that they're running the race and, and they're exercising their, their spiritual muscles by getting into the word and spending time in prayer. So there's this imperishable crown. So there's the crown of righteousness, there's the imperishable crown. And let's look at the third one. The third one comes from 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Some people call this the, uh, the soul-winning crown. Some people call this the crown of rejoicing. But it comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. This says, where Paul says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? This crown, according to this verse, is those who invest in other people. This crown is for those who evangelize and reach out to people. But not only evangelization, but also to those who just reach out to other people and, and help other people. There's a special crown in heaven for that. That's glorious. That's beautiful. You know, we serve a God who rewards. There are rewards in heaven for serving God. 
You know, we're saved by, by grace and grace alone. But after we receive that grace and we walk in that grace, there's rewards in our life and how we serve the Lord. And you may say, Pastor David, I have never done none of this, and I've just blown it. My friend, are you still breathing air? Then get on board. Get on board. It's not too late to start now. Evangelize. Reach out. Cry out to him, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You still have air. Pursue him. But this is for those who lead others to Christ and invest in others. You know, um, makes me think of uh, one of my favorite preachers and speakers, Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort, an evangelist. Man, that guy goes out and open air preaches every weekend in Huntington Beach, California. He has such, he's had such an impact on my life, the uh, Ray Comfort and Living Waters ministry, that it's completely transformed me. It gave me the, the strength and the courage for myself to go out and do street evangelism. But it takes a lot of courage, but there's a lot of reward when we reach out and, and we do ministry. But when I think about soul winning, I think about living waters and Ray Comfort and uh, what an amazing ministry. If you've never heard of it, I think it's, I think it's livingwaters.com, Way of the Master, Ray Comfort. It's a wonderful website, lots of information on biblical evangelism, and uh, it's, it's great it will get you on fire for the Lord. It'll get you on fire for evangelism and reaching out and, and work toward this crown of rejoicing. The uh, fourth crown is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 4, and that's the crown of glory, the crown of glory the Scripture talks about. And uh, I'll, I'll read it to you. It says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he will res- you will receive, the- here it is, the crown of glory that will never fade away. The crown of glory is for those who serve the body of Christ. You know what, this is not just pastors but this is elders, this is deacons, this is Sunday school teachers, this is uh, our beautiful volunteers that change diapers and, and serve the children and, and serve the whole body of Christ. There's a special crown when you give of your service to the body of Christ. It's for faithful leaders. You know, that's why it's, it's a wonderful thing to minister to the body of Christ, to help other people follow Jesus, and to help other people serve. You know, there's a special crown. There's a special crown. Now, be careful. Don't get prideful. Don't get prideful because you're not going to get to keep the crown for long, you know, because eventually it's going to go back to him. Let's look at the fifth, the fifth crown. It's called the crown of life. The crown of life is found in Revelations 2.10. And uh, this one's very, uh, it's huge for today considering what's going on in the Middle East and our brothers and sisters around the world. But Revelations 2.10 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. But he said, here's what Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This crown of life 
This is for the believers who suffer persecution. This is for believers who endure persecution. We don't see that a lot in the U.S., but we, we know what's going on a lot in the Middle East. But Christians are dying for their faith. They're dying for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're dying for standing up and saying, I'm a believer in Jesus. And there's a special crown for them. And there should be love from the rest of the body in prayers for the persecuted church. We should, we should pray for them. We should support them. We should encourage them. And we should also acknowledge them and let the rest of the body know. I mean, it's, it's, it's so prevalent today that you can turn on Fox News or MSNBC and, or CNN, the major news networks. They're even reporting today of the, um, the persecution that's taking place across the Middle East. It is heavy and it is hard. There's a war taking place right now in our culture, a spiritual war in the heavenlies that's taking place like I don't think we've ever seen before. I, don't, I think it's, it's, at, it's at the peak. And what you and I can be doing is going to our prayer closets and praying, praying for the persecuted church. But this is, this is for believers who endure persecution. This is for believers who endure suffering. Uh, this is for uh, believers that endure adversity for standing in the truth and for following Christ. Now, those are the five crowns. Those are the five crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament. Now, here's the thing. If you receive a crown when you get to heaven, don't hold on to it too tightly. Don't hold on to it too tightly. Because Revelation 4.10 says that we, after he gives us our crown, we will take those crowns and we will place them at his feet. We will place them at his feet. And you and I in heaven will sing that song that Blake and the worship team closed with. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. We will take our crowns and we'll give them back to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on that appointed day. That is what Paul was looking forward to. Remember where he's writing this from. He's in a dungeon. He's chained, possibly guards. There's this, this um, right outside the maritime prison, there's this thing called the Geronium Steps. You can look this up online. There's the, the, the Geronium Steps, and that was right outside the maritime prison, and that was the place of execution. They would bind up the victims, the political prisoners. They would bind them up, and they would, the, the uh, ancient historians say, they would throw them down the stairs. They would throw them down the stairs after they were brutally beaten, and they were, one, after they died, they, the two things would happen, according to what I read. One, they were given to the dogs and the scavengers, or they were thrown in the local river. That's what Paul is facing, okay? When you understand the historical context behind the words of what's taking place, you're like, wow, man. I would think he would be right about, man, how can I get out of here? Somebody give me a chisel. Somebody give me a saw. Let me, let me find a way to escape. I, I, I got to take the gospel to go other places. But he knew God was sovereign. He knew God was in control. And he knew that where he was at at that point is where God had appointed him. And he, he, what did he do? There in Rome in prison, he witnessed. He shared the gospel. This is where the church at Rome began. was from Paul's imprisonment. And it spread like wildfire. That's what history tells us. Because 300 years after this event, what happens? 
Constantine gets won over to Christ, and Christianity becomes the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire. But it started here. It started here with Paul in prison. And he didn't keep his eyes on his circumstances. He kept his eyes on the prize. He kept his eyes on the prize of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what you and I have to do. That's what we have to do as believers, is to say, Lord, I love you. I'm putting my eyes on you. Use me for your glory. Use me for your honor. Let me be a tool of evangelism uh, outside in the world, inviting people to come and see the hear the good news of the gospel, then coming to church and ministering to the body of Christ and helping other people and building each other up. It, it, it takes place when you call your brothers and sisters and you encourage each other and you text one another. You know, we see a brother or a sister fall away. We don't just leave them alone. We go after them. We go after them to encourage them, to, to help them come back to a place of faith. You know, there's rewards for all this. It's not all for nothing. We're not doing all this for, for no reason. We're doing it for Jesus. We're doing it for the kingdom. And that's where our heart should be. So there you have it. There's Paul's reflection and looking forward. That is a beautiful um, verses uh, 6, 7, and 8. 6, 7, and 8 is a beautiful uh, reflection on life. That each and every one of us, that you should go home in, in your devotional time and look at these verses, 6, 7, and 8, about looking back, looking behind, evaluate, evaluating your life, looking where you're at. And then it's a great um, blueprint. It's a great blueprint of how to look forward in your life as a believer. And that's what Paul's doing here in the maritime prison. So let's close it out. Paul's going to go into his closing. And um, you may say, Pastor David, what's the point? What's the purpose in a lot of these New Testament books? What is the point of him greeting all these people and bringing you my parchments and tell this person I need them and come here and go there? What's, what's the purpose of all these names at the end? The purpose of all these greetings is to show you that Paul has a lot of friends and that Paul was a real person. Paul was a, the Apostle Paul was not this superhuman, superman type person. He was a real human being, just like you and I, with emotions, with frailties, with failures, with strengths, with weaknesses. And he was doing life just like you and I. And what we're going to see is, as we go through this list, we're going to see that even Paul, the Apostle, he witnessed some, some were faithful. Some of his friends were faithful and committed to the Lord. And some of them fell away. You know, sometimes in life, we'll see people fall away from the Lord. We'll be like, why? Why did that happen? Paul probably had the same question. Paul, Paul you know, a lot of times we like to say, um, man, if I could have just lived back in the Bible days, if I could have just saw Paul, if I could have just saw Jesus, man, that would change everything. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It, it, we see him through the eyes of faith. We, we put our trust in him. But ultimately, it takes a deep commitment. Even in the earthly ministry of Jesus, when he was here on earth, some people followed him. Some people did not follow him. Even his own family members, some of his own family members did not believe in him. 
throughout his earthly ministry. So let's take a look at it. Starting with verse 9, the apostle closes out 2 Timothy. He says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has departed me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. You know, um, Demas here says, Demas, he loved this present world, and he deserted the apostle Paul. Paul witnessed an individual who knew Christ, but he deserted. He fell away. And it says why. It says why. It says why because he loved this world. He loved the ungodliness of the world, and he, and he craved it, and he fell away. What do we do? What do we do when we see a Christian brother or sister fall away? What do we do? Number one, we love them. We love them. Number two, we pray for them. Number three, we reach out to them. Number four, um, we speak the truth to them. But we lovingly, gracefully, kindly reach out to them in a spirit of grace and a spirit of truth, just like Jesus would. Just like, uh, just like the Lord would. We reach out to them in a spirit of grace. And then also in... Uh, Crescens has gone to Galatia. There is no city called Galatia. Galatia is a region of churches that Paul established. Iconium, Lystra, Derby. He sends, he sends Crescens there. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. That's interesting that he uses that phrase there in verse 11. He says, only Luke is with me. That's a powerful phrase because what do we see in the book of Acts? This is Paul's faithful companion. That Luke, this Luke, this reference here in verse 11, this is Dr. Luke. This is Dr. Luke who wrote the book of Luke, and he, he wrote the um, Acts. But Luke was his faithful companion. If you read the second half of the book of Acts, uh, Luke wrote it. He uses a lot of uh, we's in there, talking about him and Paul. We went here, we went there. But we see that Paul had this faithful companion. So in your life, you will see people that fall away, but you'll also see people that are faithful companions and people that come alongside you. And then this is good. Look at verse 11. Very gives us a beautiful picture of what happened. There's something that happens back in Acts that can leave a question. What happened to John Mark? Uh, but let's read it first. After he says, only Luke is with me, he says in verse 11, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for service. Now, if you go back to the book of Acts, on their first missionary journey, Mark dipped down on Paul, and it, it upset Paul. Paul didn't like it, and it, it, it caused a riff. And so Paul and Silas went one way, Mark and Barnabas went another way, but it, it really upset Paul. And so the rest of Paul's missionary journeys, after Mark dipped out, Mark does not join Paul again. So we wonder, well, what was their relationship like? What was Paul's heart towards Mark, who, who, who departed from them during the first missionary journey? It says right there. He says, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. I love this because it shows reconciliation. It shows that Paul's like, bring Mark with you. Bring, now Paul, Paul 
at one point they were at odds, Paul welcomes him back. You know, there's going to be times in ministry where we don't see eye to eye with, with, with people, with one another. And that happens. But ultimately, we need to reconcile. We need to uh, reconcile with our brothers and sisters that we're serving Christ with. And, and we need to say, hey, let's do this again. Let's do this again. Let's reconcile. Let's continue on serving the Lord. That is Christianity. Is, is when you're at odds, may, maybe there's anger, maybe there's hatred, but you choose in the spirit of humility as, as being Christians that you choose to work it out. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful analogy. Verse 12, he says, But Tychius, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. You know, Paul was there in a, he was in a cold dungeon. He was probably very uncomfortable. You know, he had emotions, he had feelings, he had flesh just like you and I. He was probably cold and didn't have a whole lot to read. So he makes this request in the book. He says, hey man, when you come from Troas, bring that coat. Bring that coat so I can stay warm. And by the way, bring those parchments so I can have something to read. So he's this real human being. You know, he's this real human being. That's really cool to me. Um, Verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teachings. So Paul said there was somebody in his life, they did great harm possibly bodily harm to him. They physically hurt him. There was people that assaulted Paul. Again, what do we do when we, when we have those kind of conflicts? The same thing we do as I talked about earlier. We pray for them. We love them. We, we, we um, have a spirit that, that we want to reconcile with that person and make things at peace. Again, standing firm on the truth, speaking the truth in love, but we, but we still, we do those things. It's, it's interesting, as, as I was reading and studying this passage this week, you know, Paul's in prison um, here in Rome, but yet he's directing. You, you, know, you see that? Paul was a leader. Paul was a leader. He knew his God. He knew the gospel. God was using him mightily despite his chains, but yet in this cold dungeon in Rome, he's given given the body direction. He's telling them what to do, and he's given them godly counsel, and I'm sure they were listening. Verse 17. Oh, no, excuse me, verse 16. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. You know, Paul was lonely. Paul was lonely. He was, he, there was times in his ministry where he was abandoned. You know, the whole range of spectrum of emotions Paul experienced um, in his imprisonment and on his missionary journeys. But who was the source of his strength? It was God. It was, the, it was Christ Jesus. As, as much as I value, and man, I love my friendships and I love my relationships that I have with all of you guys. And they're very, very important to me. And, and I wouldn't trade them for nothing. But more important than my relationship with you is my relationship with God. And so it should be with us. Let that be our foundational 
friend, our love, our Lord, our master, our God. And out of that, let that be solid, that be found. But then after that, let's build our relationships with each other. And, but he says, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. It says here, um, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, that all the Gentiles might hear. Paul, as we call him, was what? He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the one that broke the ice. Christianity, Judaism as we know it, it was a religion there in Israel. There were some sparse synagogues in the Roman world during the first century, but Paul was the ultimate icebreaker. His job was to take the gospel to the Gentile worlds. By the way, that's what you and I are. You know, if you're not Jewish, you're, you're a Gentile. You know, the Jewish nation, they were God's chosen people. And, and, and after Christ rose from the grave, he, he, um, he broke down that barrier, showing that the gospel was for all people. And Paul was the one. Paul was the one. And he said, I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Many commentators believe that the lion's mouth is a reference to Rome. It was a reference to Rome, man. They wanted to crush anything that opposed them. You, got to, you need to understand the context of the book of Romans. It was written in a time where if you came along and said, Jesus is Lord, you could lose your head. Because in the Roman ancient world, there was one Lord, and his name was, he was the Caesar. And to, 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 to defy him, you would lose your life. And so they were like a lion. The ancient Roman world was like a lion. They would crush anything that came close to, to testing them or to making something greater than them. They were the lion. And Paul says, I've been rescued out of the lion's mouth. And what y'all meant, you know, y'all arrested me in Jerusalem, brought me to Israel. Y'all meant to, what y'all meant to suppress the gospel, what y'all, y'all meant to end it, has further expanded it. It was through his imprisonment that Paul is taken to Rome and the gospel goes to Rome. It can't be stopped. It can't be stopped. But God, God delivered him. God used him for a mighty purpose. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet, greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletos. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all their brethren. And then I love this. His final words, his final statement that Paul makes through the inspired scripture is verse 22. And I think this is his prayer for all believers. Is, is this, the Lord be with your spirit. The Lord be with your spirit. What's he talking about? He's saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be yielded to the Spirit of the Lord. Let the Spirit of the Lord guide your life, direct your life. And and it all comes from surrendering to Christ Jesus. And then equally, you know, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit indwell you, be, be submitted to him. In that last half of verse 22, he says, grace be with you. The most important thing you can know about grace 
and on, on this side of eternity and this life is that is what your relationship with God is based on. Grace. It's not about legalism. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's, it's not about <clears throat> you performing and being this, oh, Christian, this holier-than-thou Christian. That's not what your relationship with God is based on. It's based on grace. God's grace. You know, we have to walk in that. We got to walk in those two principles. We got to walk in the Spirit, being yielded to the Holy Spirit, and then we have to walk in God's grace. Amen? Church history tells us shortly after this is uh, written, he would be taken out and, and he, would be, he would lose his head. He would be beheaded under uh, Emperor Nero for his uh, insurrection to the Roman world, his proclamation that, no, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Let us walk in that same confidence that Paul did. And let us be thankful for everything the Lord is doing in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this awesome study in Timothy. Lord, I pray that you will use these words to help us grow. To help us grow in our love for you and our faith in you and our commitment to you, God. Strengthen us. Encourage us. Let us be a people yielded to your Holy Spirit. And let us be a people that walk in grace. And let us be a people that shows grace to each other. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to close with a song. If you're here and you need special prayer, please take advantage of it. We'll be at the back of the sanctuary to pray for you.